Well, before we consider tonight's five verses, I want to remind you of a few of the truths which we read just now from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, because they contain certain statements regarding every Christian believer. And those statements actually lie at the heart of these exhortations that we're considering in Romans chapter 12. It should not surprise us at all that there is this glorious harmony throughout the letters of the Apostle and indeed, of course, throughout the entire Bible. Back in Ephesians, we read that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That you and I should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Their thinking is futile. Their minds are futile. Their understanding is darkened. They are alienated from the life of God. You are not There is ignorance in them, which comes from having hearts that are blind to God and his truth. They are past feelings, and they are given over to wickedness and unrighteousness of every sort. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him, if indeed you have been taught by him. Therefore, now here's a phrase to get your head around. Here's here's a phrase to put your heart under. Be imitators of God. The bar for the Christian could not be set higher, could it? Be imitators of God. That life of God which is now in you through Christ has to come out of you by Christ. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us and offering a sacrifice to God. Now, of course, Romans 12 begins with the exhortation that we must give ourselves as living sacrifices. But it's all based upon the fact that, first of all, Christ has given himself as an offering and a sacrifice for us. You were once darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And that's what Romans 12 is all about. If you're a Christian, you're no longer like all of the unbelievers out there. You can no longer be like the rest of the Gentiles. Your mind is no longer futile. It has been renewed and you are being transformed and reformed. You're someone who is no longer alienated from the life of God if you're in Christ Jesus. You now have his life. You're no longer ignorant. Your heart is no longer blind. Your understanding is no longer dark because you are no longer dark. You are light in the Lord. You're to walk as a child of the light and even as an imitator 
of God. And it is to such people that Romans 12 is addressed. Romans 12 is about the children of God living as the children they now are. Have you been renewed and born again of God's Spirit? Are you a child of God? Do you now have the light and life of God? Well, these are the graces and the principles which must now shape and mould your life and mark you out from the rest. These are the, the truths and the graces and the principles which tomorrow morning, as you mix amongst many who don't know the Saviour, they mark you out and make you distinctive as someone who belongs to the Lord. And these concluding five verses apply across, across every area of life, in your home, in the church, and in any other setting where you may find yourself. You can see that, as Paul tells us, uh, he says, this is how you are to be to all men, in verses 17 and 18. And what I want to do this evening is just pull out uh, kind of three main headings. Uh, all of these verses are, are kind of inter interconnected to one another, and you can, you can kind of put them together in a variety of different ways. Um, but I've pulled out three particular headings, three particular themes that come out of these verses. And we'll look at these closing five verses in that way. So the first theme or heading is this. Resist taking revenge. And we see that in the first half of verse 17, and then he goes back to it in verse 19. Repay no one evil for evil. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. You might have in your Bible, to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Resist taking revenge. One of the strongest urges that you will have ever known or experienced is the desire to get even with someone who's done you wrong. can come over you in many different ways. It can be, well, it can be a quiet scheming, just waiting for the right moment to strike. It can be an immediate outburst, a violent knee-jerk reaction. It can be a deep-seated brooding as your sense of hurt and outrage festers within you. And this overriding desire to retaliate and typically to make them suffer even more than you have. That's the sinful heart in all of us. It's so often the way of the world, and occasionally stories hit the headlines of people who've spent a small fortune in legal fees over a dispute that right at the beginning would have cost them maybe just a few hundred pounds at most. And now they've had to remortgage their house to cover all the legal costs. 
Why? Because pride and the need to retaliate got the best of them. They could not let it go. The sinful heart demands retaliation. I must pay them back for what they have done to me, and I will not rest until I've done it. That kind of attitude, Paul is saying, simply can no longer reside in the heart of the Christian. Now, one thing that's probably worth just pointing out here is what this is not saying. It's not saying that it's wrong, for example, to seek due lawful recompense if you have been harmed or injured, if your property has been damaged or stolen, if something has been done to you or against you and it was unlawful or it was malicious and it's caused you to uh, incur financial loss or injury, it is not wrong for you to seek justice for that by means of the public judicial system that's available to you in order to see to it that the person who's done this thing is held accountable for what they've done and is, is made to take responsibility for what they've done and, if necessary, to reimburse you in some appropriate way. If necessary, to be punished for a crime they've committed. That kind of equity is something that the Bible upholds and endorses. That kind of equity was built into the civil law which God gave to Old Testament Israel. So that's not what Paul is talking about here. And that kind of judicial system, that's what the phrase an eye for an eye is all about. Proper, fair recompense and reimbursement which fits the crime, which fits the loss, not more, not less. And actually, the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth, was more to stop people from trying to get more back than they are due, because they want to make that person suffer more than I have. No, just fairness and equity. But what Paul is saying here, what you're not permitted to do, is to take matters into your own hands in retaliation and act in, in a like manner against someone else and to do it vengefully or to even think about it or to allow yourself to brood over it. Their evil against you is never a reason or an excuse for you to return that evil against them. And Paul has in, has in mind here those things that are going on at a personal level between us. Christians don't behave or react out of malice or spitefulness. You don't embark upon a personal vendetta. That's the path of sin, not the path of grace. And even if it's in a situation where it seems that the person who has wronged you is going to get away with it scot-free, you don't allow that to change a thing. And Paul says, here's the thing that will, that will quell your anger and calm your rage. If there's to be any vengeance, if there's to be any comeback, if there's to be any punishment, the Lord 
will deal with it. Verse 19. And Paul goes back into the Old Testament. He goes back to Leviticus chapter 19. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. The Lord will deal with it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now it may be that God moves against them in the here and now. He can, and he might. But even if he doesn't, there's a day of wrath approaching, and God will judge and sentence in perfect justice and truth. Now, where it speaks of uh, the wrath of God, uh, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Most of the Bible translations add the words of God. It's the wrath of God that's being spoken about here. Uh, Now the words of God aren't actually in the original Greek, but many Bible translators have just added those two words to make it clear whose wrath Paul is talking about. Paul actually says in the Greek, the wrath, give place to the wrath. And every New Testament reader would have understood exactly what it was Paul was talking about. The wrath of God on that great day, or even sooner, if God so chooses. Christians, says Paul, leave it with the Lord. Lay it at the Lord's feet and walk away when those feelings of vengeance and retaliation stir up within you. Imagine you're driving along in your car, you see someone commit a really serious crime and then speed off. And before you know it, you're speeding after them. And uh, you're on the phone to the police and you shouldn't be, but you are, and you're telling them what's just happened and what car you're following and what car you're in and where you are and you need to get here now and sort things out. And to your great surprise and joy, maybe even to your slight disappointment, a couple of police cars appear in your rearview mirror and they come speeding past you. What is the right thing now for you to do? You must pull over. You must give way to the police to do that which is theirs to do. It's not for you to try and stop and confront this criminal You leave it it now in the hands of the police and the judicial system. That's their job. That's what you do when wronged. You don't go after them yourself. And here Paul is saying in like manner, you don't go after them yourself. You give way to the wrath of God. God will deal with this. God will deal with them. It may even be in his grace that he brings, to, brings them to repentance and saves them. How could I then be harboring this heart of vengeance towards them? No, I must leave it all with the Lord. All men and women will be held accountable for every sin, but that is God's place and God's work. It's not yours and it's not mine. And what also does this remind us, dear unsaved ones who are with us this evening, a day of wrath is approaching. It will be a day when God will unleash his 
fury against sin. But when we speak of God's wrath, when we speak of God's fury, this is not an out-of-control, losing-his-temper fury. That's not God. This is his just and his righteous fury, which is based upon his truth and righteousness and justice. And he will deliver to each one perfect judgment. And he will ascribe to each one the perfect penalty that is due their sins. And a punishment which they will have to endure for eternity. The wrath of God is coming. And Paul actually lays that out fair and square right at the start of this letter. The the wrath of God is revealed. Everyone knows it's due. And of course, Paul is showing us how, how it is that only the Lord Jesus Christ can save you from that judgment. This indeed is why Jesus came, that you might not perish, but have life everlasting. How and why? Because only the Lord Jesus Christ has stood in your place and only he has taken that penalty for your sins as your substitute on the cross. There, as the sky grew black, as Christ hung on the cross, the fury of God was poured out against his own son. That's why Jesus cried out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the fury of God fell upon Christ in order that your sins may be atoned for. That same Jesus who rose three days later, victorious over sin and death, in whose life you may have life everlasting. In him is forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. The wrath is coming but in Christ there is salvation and pardon and forgiveness. Well, back to our text. Christians are to resist taking revenge. Unbelievers are to encounter in believers qualities of character and aspects of grace which leave them utterly bewildered and lost for words. They are to discover in you unheard of meekness and self-control. A meekness and a self-control which evidences the change that God is producing in you. Isn't this in very large measure what made Christ so distinct? in his earthly life and ministry? Isn't this what made New Testament believers so distinct? Isn't this? This must be what makes you and I distinctive in the world. And it's not something new. Listen to two of the Proverbs. Here's Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say... I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord. He will save you. Verse 29 of Proverbs 24. Do not say, I will do to him 
just as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. I will get even. No, 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 says God in his word. That's not the way of the believer. Those kinds of words never come from your lips. Those kinds of thoughts are never found in your heart. These things are proof of the spirit and grace of God at work in you. As is the next thing, which is this. You are to regard what is good. Regard what is good. And this is the second half of verse 17 and then verse 20. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. So that includes your enemies. That includes those who want to persecute you if you're a Christian. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. And as a reference in those verses to chapter 25 of Proverbs, the English Standard Version puts it like this. Give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. That's probably a very helpful way of putting it. Give yourself to doing that which is right, that which is good, that which is proper, that which is fitting, that which is honourable in the sight of all men. If you're in a situation where you're at odds with someone or in disagreement with them or someone who's actively working against you, you are to concentrate on doing what is right and not worrying so much about trying to prove who is right. Doing what is right is the key thing for the Christian. The Christian is less concerned with who is right and winning arguments, more concerned with what is right and behaving with honour and honesty and integrity, regardless of the situation that you're in. Even when people are way out of line and you're on the receiving end, you're not to be vindictive against them. You must not allow their poor behaviour to corrupt your own behaviour. You continue to do to them and for them that which is right and good and proper and fitting. Just like David did in the Old Testament with King Saul, when Saul was out to kill David. There were times when David could have taken matters into his own hands. There were times when David's companions urged him on to do just that. You can be finished with this, David. David refused. He's the king. I will honour him. Even though he seeks to kill me. I will honour him as the king. That's the heart of a believer. Just like Daniel 
and his three friends in Babylon. They were model employees, even though they were being employed against their will by the enemy. They were the best employees Babylon had. Because that's how a believer behaves. This is how a child of God and a follower of Christ behaves. And so that comes really close to home as well, doesn't it? Within the context of family life, within the context of church life. We are all to be behaving like this towards one another. And of course, when, if we're all behaving like this, we'll discover that all of us are increasingly modifying our behaviour together because all of us are striving in this direction. And the more we all do it, the more we all do it. The more we all see it exampled, the more we all carry on doing it. The more we see the goodness of it, the more we all do it. By this kind of behaviour, the Christian can, up to a point, even have a sanctifying influence on unbelievers and their behaviour in the home, at school, at work. It's not guaranteed, but it can be the case. And then Paul cranks it up and he takes us back to this issue of how you must respond and react towards those who are very actively against you. They are your enemy because you are a Christian. He's talking about the same ones who are persecuting you, as he talked about back in verse 14. You maintain a regard for good towards them. You do not wish upon them the things of revenge. You leave that with God. You resist retaliation. But that's not all. Because in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you go the extra mile. If you see that your enemy is hungry or thirsty, hmm. If you see that your enemy is hungry or thirsty, the thing now that does not immediately well up within you is good. Serves them right. That's the least they deserve. Let them go hungry. Let them be thirsty. Not the Christian. Not the Christian. You feed them. You give them a drink. Why? Because that's what is proper and fitting in the eyes of God. Those feelings that I'm in the right here and you're in the wrong, the who is right and the who is wrong is overpowered by what is right and what is wrong. The Christian chooses what is right. 
it is right and proper to feed them, so I shall. It is right and proper to give them a drink, so I shall. Have regard for these things in the sight of all men, says the apostle. This is supernatural compassion. This is supernatural mercy. This is supernatural grace, even toward your enemy. You can only do this if you truly are in Christ. And, says the apostle, you are heaping up coals of fire upon their heads. Uh, There are a number of interpretations as to what exactly that means, but the most widely accepted and very largely accepted meaning of that phrase, heaping coal upon their heads, is that your behaviour towards your enemy will bring them under conviction of their wrongdoing against you. Your behaviour towards them shames them, perhaps even embarrasses them. Your behaviour towards them will provoke their conscience. Your behaviour towards them will stop them in their tracks and make them stop and think. Your behaviour towards them will show them up for who they are. It might even bring them to true and full repentance. It may at least produce an apology. By confronting them, by doing what is right and good, you shake up their world. And that they know they have seen in you a better way, even if they dare not admit it. They know that they have seen in you a better way. The Apostle Paul and his fellow worker Silas were in prison in Philippi. Their crime? They'd cast out a demon from a slave girl. That's all they'd done. That's all they'd done. But that was all they'd done. They could have been sat in prison having the biggest moan of their lives about their unfair treatment. But instead, at midnight, they are singing praises to God. It's not about who's right, it's about what's right. They're singing God's praise. God's in all of this. God's over all of this. Why should we not praise him? And when an earthquake came and shook open all the prison doors and loosened all the chains that were attached to the walls of the prison, they could have run away. But they didn't. Did they? Why didn't they? Because a Christian does what is right. It was right not to run away. And they're doing right, heaped burning coals upon the jailer's head. And he was converted. Would he have been converted if they'd run away? Having regard for good 
and shaking up this world of wickedness. Will you do that in Christ, for Christ, this week? And then number three, pursuing peace, pursuing it. And this is verse, verses 18 and 21. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Verse 18, in its construction, acknowledges that we won't always be at peace with everyone. If it is possible. Sometimes it's not possible, because to be at peace with someone, uh, that requires them as well as you. But if it is possible, live peaceably with all men. Well, there have been times, there are times, there are times right now when this sinful world refuses to live peaceably alongside Christians. You may feel there's nothing that can be done about it. But anything you can do, you must do to be at peace. You may not be in agreement with all men, but you must still live peaceably with them. Christians are not troublemakers. Christians don't go around making it their aim to wind people up and cause trouble. Now, sometimes you will wind people up. Sometimes you will cause trouble. But that's not because you set out to do it. That's just the impact of a Christian life in a sinful world when sin is exposed for what it is. But you don't go around seeking to make trouble. And surely in the things we've looked at in the first two points this evening, you can see how these attitudes and behaviours in Christians can tend towards peaceful relationships. These are really practical exhortations regarding not being conformed to the patterns that you see in this world. Not having your attitudes and behaviours fall in line with the sinful world that's all around you. Not falling in line with the attitudes and behaviours of unconverted hearts, but having a renewed mind and having a transformed life. And even in the church, actually we might say especially in the church, surely in the church, if you have a disagreement, you do everything you can so as not to stir up strife and to maintain peace within the church. Maybe before speaking up, you need to seek godly counsel from others in the church who maybe are a little older and wiser than you. How do I go about this in the proper way? How do I go about this in a way that won't stir people up unnecessarily? Is this issue so big that it's bigger than maintaining unity in the church? Now, that's not to say that we should tolerate sin in the church for the sake of unity. We can never do that. Rebuke and correction 
will always be necessary in the church where there is sin. But in addressing sin, you'll do everything possible to avoid causing disunity and to main, maintain peace. That requires much wisdom and grace and humility on the part of all of us in the church. Now, occasionally, there might be some really serious sin. There might be some really serious heresy which needs to be addressed. It might seem it's almost impossible to maintain peace. But you must still do all that you can to avoid unnecessary strife amongst the Lord's people. And this little sentence Paul uses right at the end in verse 21, well, it kind of sums up, doesn't it, much of what Paul is saying here don't overcome, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good, with good. The word overcome means to get the victory over. Don't let evil get the victory over you. You get the victory over evil with good. The goodness of God, the goodness of Christ. This is a good which is only found in God. And this is God's goodness, which comes to you by means of Christ and his spirit and his word of truth. And this goodness, this, this grace and this humility, this meekness and self-control that is to be seen in you gives testimony of God's work in you and points others to him. This is God's doing. This is the difference God makes in a sinner's life. That's what this is all about. That's what's at stake here. That's why it must be our chief concern to take these things to our hearts. What was one of the very early things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven because it can only be his doing. Only God can produce this in the heart and life of a man or woman. At the end of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church, Paul writes these words. This is from chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. We exhort you, brethren, warn, the, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Well, this is three of his letters now. The same stuff is appearing all the time. Why? Because we all need this. This is the tendency of all of us. Unless the spirit and grace of Christ truly has gotten hold of our hearts. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Paul is writing to a church that he commends for their faith in the gospel, right at the start of the letter. 
always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Pursue it. Go after it. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, the teaching of God. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's heart for and to Christians. He knows all about this. This was Paul. He knows all of these things in his heart. How often you read of those things that happened to Paul in his, in his life as a, as a believer, all the shipwrecks and the beatings and the lashings and the imprisonments, how many times might it have been that the Apostle Paul could just feel this spirit of retaliation urging and welling up within himself and having to remind himself again and again, no, 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 this is not the way for me now. I'm in Christ now. I'm under his grace now. Well, maybe there are one or two and you're still not yet fully convinced. Well, it wasn't just Paul who spoke this way. Peter did too. This was, this was the life that all of the apostles came to know and understand. Listen to the apostle Peter as we close. This is the second chapter of 1 Peter. What credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently but when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently this is commendable before God for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. This same Christ who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus did what Paul is exhorting us to do. Give place to the wrath of God. That's what Christ did. We're following him. The one who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. In Christ, you have been called to this life, a life transformed beyond measure.